Coming up on Tech Nation, we look at how encouraging shame figures into the algorithms of social media, how our society can shame but not recover, and how humans can be addicted to the thrill of shaming others. Dr. Kathy O'Neill joins me with The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? Then Dr. Daniel Bloomfield, the Chief Medical Officer of Anthos Therapeutics, joins me to describe the current challenge of preventing bleeding while avoiding the specter of clotting. Anthos may have a solution. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I spoke with Vijay Vaithiswaran, then the China business and finance editor for The Economist and the author of Need, Speed, and Greed, How the New Rules of Innovation Can Transform Businesses propel nations to greatness, and tame the world's most wicked problems. So I asked him, what does the world think are the most wicked problems, and what do you think? You know, we've been focused, in America at least, on the war on terror post-9-11, on um, fixing capitalism after Enron and Lehman Brothers. These are difficult problems. I mean, they deserve our attention. But these aren't novel problems. Um, If we look at uh, political terrorism has been with us for a thousand years. Uh, Capitalism is always in one crisis or another. And, uh, you know, South Sea bubbles, tulip manias and so on. So I say that let's look and ask what from the perspective of our grandchildren will be judged on. It's how we handle this extraordinary transformation that's happening in demography, and the world is getting much older, sicker, fatter. China's getting old before it gets rich. How are we going to pay for this? Alzheimer's could be a trillion-dollar problem soon enough. That's a wicked problem. The world is urbanized so rapidly. And we know the species urbanized as of two years ago. We're more than 50% urban. China just crossed that mark two months ago. And within 20 years, the figure will be 70% globally and growing. What will the megalopolises of the world look like? Will they be brilliant, energy-efficient, eco-cities as a great thinker like Stuart Brand imagines them? Or will they be more like the favelas and uh, suburban or exurban sprawl that we see in parts of America, which is resource-intensive and unsustainable? That's a megatrend. That's a wicked problem. And of course, there's a golden age of innovation we're living through. The prosperity, the seamy underbelly of that is the hyperconnectivity that's leading to a new age of pandemics, which your listeners know very well. Uh, it is a very difficult time to be alive from the perspective of global potential pandemics and superbugs of the bacterial SARS. variety. Just think of SARS. Look at the airplanes. Where are they going? And Fast. we dodged a bullet with H1N1, and we were not prepared. We're not prepared in our surveillance networks and how we think about public policy. We weren't uh, prepared with the technology of vaccines. Chicken eggs, for heaven's sake, in this day and age is how America does its vaccines. So I say that these are wicked, wicked problems, difficult problems, but I want to issue something of a call to arms because I think we can turn adversity into opportunity if we have a more ambitious, more disruptive, uh, ultimately more democratic vision of innovation. Now, let's get down to the nature of innovation. I mean, innovation is certainly about creating new products and services, but it's also about creating new ideas, new concepts from which we operate, new paradigms, new views, new values even. 
that's where I think your book really takes us on some very new territory. Well, well, thank you. I, I got so miffed, and I'm I'm an engineer from MIT, right? So I've been steeped in technology and gadgets and gizmos my whole life. I love all my Apple stuff and all that. But guess what? Innovation is not about technology. Uh, innovation, in my view, is fundamentally not about invention or patents or IP or PhDs, even though official reports from every government, including our own official academies and the Chinese vision of indigenous innovation, emphasizes metrics and inputs into the process. Uh, innovation is about fresh thinking, which may or may not involve technology, that creates value. That value can be for uh, for your customers if you're a private sector company, but it can be for stakeholders if you're a social enterprise. Boy, there's a vibrant sector with social enterprise, philanthrocapitalist, hybrid business models that are emerging to solve difficult problems. It can even be for, this, for the citizens at large if you're an innovative arm of government. So I want to shift the conversation from a product and technology focus to looking at what is the real value created. Anything new, and is there value there? Absolutely. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with Vijay Vaithiswaran, who is today the U.S. business editor for The Economist. His book is Need, Speed, and Greed, How the New Rules of Innovation Can Transform Businesses, Propel Nations to Greatness, and Tame the World's Most Wicked Problems. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Dr. Kathy O'Neill, who you may know from her earlier book, Weapons of Math Destruction. She's back with The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? Then a new approach to preventing bleeding while avoiding blood clotting. Dr. Daniel Bloomfield, the chief medical officer of Anthos Therapeutics, joins me to describe their work. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Kathy O'Neill. Kathy, welcome back to Tech Nation. I am so glad to be back. Well, I have to tell you, you really knocked me out with this book. It's not just shame. It's how corporations monetize shame, how modern society has uniquely embodied shame without understanding how to bring that to some positive conclusion for its own benefit. I mean, it just leaves you out there wallowing in your shame. But let's start simple. You know, as I read your book, I kept remembering events in my own life. I think most people... I don't think I've expressed them to most people. I've just experienced them uh, from just a little kid up to an adult. And you write, shame lurks in repressed thoughts and unspoken fear. Let's start there. How do we identify shame in our own lives? Well, shame is the feeling of not being worthy, of being unlovable. And it's a threat to us as individuals. It's a threat to our sense of self. So 
you might even say our sense of self disintegrates at that moment of feeling and really living in the experience of, of, of shame. Um, likewise, it is extremely memorable. Um, it's supposed to be a learning moment, right? So we're being told you're not behaving correctly in, in sort of the most basic form. You should think about it as, you know, you're hoarding food during a, a, a moment of scarcity. Um, so this is a threat to your, um, your happiness and health, because if you're not being a good member of the community, you're going to be thrown out. So really, it makes sense that it's memorable because it is like literally a threat to your life and to your sense of self. So it's actually very common for people to have like some of their earliest, most powerful memories be memories of shame. And at the same time, shame is, is its own sort of silencing mechanism. It keeps us from talking about things because we're ashamed of them. So it's both something that is, in, is sort of never spoken about and something that's incredibly memorable. And it has that unique um, characterization. Ooh, what a weapon. Yeah, it can be. And that's exactly right. Yes. Let's stick with the individual experience of shame. I understand there are four stages starting with hurt. Yeah. So that first, what I call the shame shock, the moment of feeling the pain of feeling like you did it wrong. And to be clear, shame isn't something that you would experience by yourself. At least originally, it is something that is coming from a group, maybe just another person, maybe your mother, but it is telling you that you, what you're doing is uh, you're doing something for yourself. That's, that's bad for the community. So it's a, it's a pro-social notion. And that feels really bad. It feels terrible. And that's stage one. And then stage two is almost immediately after stage one, because it's so uncomfortable. It's such a monumental threat to our existence that we immediately are thrown into this kind of cognitive dissonance where we sort of reckon with ourselves. We say, well, or I, I think it's more like, it's not that we reckon with ourselves. It's that we, um, we try to reason with ourselves. We try to like uh, argue that, well, wait, I'm a good person. I'm a, I can't be a bad person. I can't be unworthy because I'm a good person and I'm worthy. And so that cognitive dissonance often leads pretty quickly into the sort of st the st second stage of denial. And denial can last a long time. I, just as an experience from my own childhood, I was very ashamed of being overweight and I really didn't want to be flawed. And this is, a, I was understood it to be a major flaw about my lovableness. And the, the way that, um, I dealt with it was I just never looked in the mirror. So like, that's what denial looks like. I just, I ignore the fact that I have a body altogether. Right. The thing about it, of course, is that's a very, and it always is a relatively contingent sort of, um, equilibrium. It's not going to stay forever. You often go from stage two back to stage one. So these are not monotonically increasing stages. Like you get thrown back right you get triggered if you will back into feeling ashamed if you haven't really gotten to stage 3 which is when you kind of really do the reckoning with yourself you say my experience is i am fat i tried dieting it didn't work for me i managed to you know have children anyway i managed to find love anyway i managed to build a career anyway you know sort of you have your own story you tell yourself just to get get you past that um sort of very um unstable system of denial and, and, and shame and sitting in shame. But it, again, is precarious. You can get thrown back for, by a specific event, like say 
you know, a, a very embarrassing wedding dress that you couldn't fit in at the last minute or whatever it is it, back into stage one. And then finally, uh, sometimes you manage to get to stage four, which is the, the final stage, which is when you don't just understand what's happened to you as a person, but what happens to the people in the world. And you can even think of it as a understanding of if it's, if it's maybe fat shame, as an understanding of it as a social justice issue. And you can think to yourself, wait a second, look around, like diets don't work. There's an entire weight loss industry making money, pretending they work and making us feel like we have failed. Um, so that's what that's, I would call that stage four. So you're thinking on behalf of a, an entire group of people rather than just yourself. Or if it was an action that happened to you by the circumstance of your youth, that you finally get to the point of, I'm not doing it to my children and I didn't do it to my children and they're not doing it to their children, then maybe we have overcome this and we've gotten out of it. There are many examples in your book. We can go all the way up to such societal examples and very exceptional examples as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, founded by Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Can you talk about that and, yeah, and, and tell us how that fits into the picture? One of the goals I'm I'm really trying to achieve by this book is to have a better, more precise conversation about shame, which I consider like an invisible force that affects us in all realms at all times. So people can disagree with something I'm saying here, but here's what I'm saying, that it doesn't just, it's not just the individual passage um, through the stages of shame that I'm interested in describing. I'm also interested in describing how we as a society pass through these stages of shame, because I really do think we do. Like I, I, the example from South Africa is, is, is a great one where, you know, they really are trying to do the reckoning, the work of reckoning, which is to pass from denial into acknowledgement and understanding it in a sort of thorough way, both for oneself and for the society at large, that happens for individuals. It also happens for society. In particular, if you don't mind me mentioning another example, it's exactly what we're seeing not happen when we hear fights about you know schools in the South talking about critical race theory. It's exactly what we're refusing to do as a nation. We're refusing to really reckon with our racist past or past of slavery or Jim Crow era. Um, and I'd like to just make one final point about that. When we acknowledge that we're proud of our history, we're proud of our ancestors, we're proud of our country, then we also have to grapple with the shame that comes from our history, the shame that comes from our, what our ancestors accomplished. So there's like this acknowledgement, if you will, a national acknowledgement of all the great things that we've done as a country, but where there's a large amount of denial about the, the terrible things we've done as a country. And so, yeah, that's an example. And I, I will mention one other example. You know, we've been talking about, um, you know, I talked about my fat shame, but I also want to make the point that one, when one actually misbehaves badly, there is a notion of these four stages of shame too, you know? So I, I feel like the fat shame that I experienced as a child was punching down shame, was like unfair shame onto me. It was like a, it was punitive and unfair. But there are other moments when I actually have done something wrong. And when I've done something wrong, it's particularly easy to get into that cognitive dissonance, conflict and denial, right? And it's, that's when you see people be defensive. And that's when you see people issue fake apologies. Well, I would, I would stipulate that a fake apology is a, is a perfect example of how someone wants to be seen as having gone through stage three, the reckoning, but they haven't. 
And they, that's why they can't actually issue an apology. A, a true apology, which is very clear from the outsider's perspective, is when someone starts with, I did wrong. A fake apology is when people start with, sorry that you feel like I did wrong, right? <laughs> so <laughs> it is, it's a tantamount to saying, I refuse to go through that into the third stage because it would mean reckoning with what I did and I did something wrong. It's very understandable. And unfortunately, most people, to be honest, never get to stage three. Most countries never get to stage three. We need to get to stage three, by the way, when it comes to racism. Or with anything that we've done wrong. We have to, yes. we have to come to that or we actually get stuck in that cycle. And I have to say, you did a lot of uh, writing within the book uh, or there's a lot of writing within the book. This is hardly the, the greatest part of it, but I, I very much enjoyed when you were talking about public people issuing apologies and you're saying, or statements that are supposed to be apologies. You say they, you write meticulously crafted by lawyers and corporate crisis counselors. They're half-baked mea culpis. And for me, I'm always like turning to my children or my students or whoever, and I'm like, that's not really an apology. That's not really an apology. And I think we have to start to consciously understand what is and is not an apology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My feeling is that unless the apology starts with, I was wrong, it's not an apology. Um, and that's, it's, it's pretty much that simple. And of course, by the way, I will add, that's exactly what lawyers tell you not to do, right? So it, it makes sense that exactly what you're wanting to hear in an apology is exactly what you'll never hear from these lawyer fabricated um, fake apologies. And yet you relate the story of Alabama Governor George Wallace and New York State Representative Shirley Chisholm. Neither are with us today, but at one point they were both running for the Democratic presidential nominee or nomination, I should say. Relate that story. George Wallace um, was a famous racist and uh, segregationist and outspokenly so. He got shot and was in the hospital and Shirley Chisholm visited him in the hospital. And he seemingly had a real moment of crisis uh, of, his inner, of his inner understanding of, of race relations and humans. He became a human at that moment. He went straight into stage three of shame. And in fact, stage four, because after that, he, he turned a completely new leaf. And in fact, he publicly did so. Um, to the point where he got reelected with a large, like a large percentage of the black vote because he was seen to have done so. Um, and the most important thing is that he actually said he had been wrong about it and, and people believed him. And I, I, the thing that I really love about that story is that people really are good people and they are forgiving. They are forgiving of people who truly apologize. And I think that's a beautiful thing, even for people who have done harm. Um, if you've done harm and you know how to actually apologize, like earnestly, then you can expect people to uh, uh, to respond. And and the funny thing about it, of course, is that if people were were strategic, maybe they they would know how to apologize more. But but they simply don't. They can't do it. Because at the end of the day, it requires, it requires this reckoning with your inner soul. It requires you to say to yourself, like, wow, I did something that was truly bad. And that was what George Wallace was able to do. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kathy O'Neill. You may know her from her earlier book, 
Weapons of Math Destruction, Dr. O'Neill launched the lead program in data journalism at Columbia University and recently founded ORCA, that's O-R-C-A-A, an algorithmic auditing company. She's here today with The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the Age of Humiliation? Now let's get to today. Let's get to network shame. You do anything today that's recordable, reportable, assertable, it's all over the internet and with a vengeance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I want to take this opportunity to sort of define punching down shame because we're about to see a lot of examples of it in talking about social media. Punching down shame is another way of saying inappropriate shaming. Um, but I, I, I attempt to sort of create a couple of principles uh, uh, in the book to try to give a little taxonomy of different types of shaming um, with the goal of understanding the answer to two questions. One is when is it appropriate to shame? And two, when does it work? Um, and so the first question is when is it appropriate? And when is it like, which i.e. when is it punching down? My claim is that if it's, if the person that you're shaming either has no choice or no voice, and I'll say what that means, then you shouldn't be doing it. So choice, it, it goes back to my example of fat shaming. Like when you shame somebody for their body or for their age or for their other issues that they have trouble fixing, they maybe they actually have no power over, then you're, you're shaming them unfairly. Like you're shaming them on something they don't have a choice about. I would argue that poverty uh, is an example of this. Addiction is an example of this. And, and I, I do want to caveat that I realize that we have some amount of control over those things, but we have far less control than you would might want, right? Like, and that's actually kind of important, right? We want to have control over our weights. We want to have control over our, you know, our, our income and our addictions, but we simply don't have as much control as we want. This wishful thinking in a certain sense is why people feel like the permission to shame people, but it's, it is unfair. Secondarily, I argue that when people don't have the right to defend themselves or they likewise don't have the right to be seen as improving their behavior, because after all, like the idea of shame is to improve somebody's behavior. So if, if you're going to like see them do something wrong, shame them for it and never check up on them again, ever, um, that means that they can't ever be redeemed, right? Then that's, that's what I call having no, not a, not sufficient voice. And, you know, just by the examples, I, the, the definitions I just gave, it's pretty clear. I hope that most shaming that happens on social media is punching down shame. Most of the time, uh, you are either shaming somebody based on some are, are like very shallow aspect of them that they really don't have much control over, or they did make a mistake, but you're never going to hear from them again. And so you're basically eclipsing their humanity with your um, targeting of them of shame. Having said all that, like I, I do, I don't want to just like dwell on the idea that we're also misbehaved and, and nasty on the internet. We all know that. Um, I want to make the case, in fact, that this is you should you should see this as like a profit engine um where we are we are doing the work for the the big tech companies we are creating a, a we're doing we're creating the shame we're being induced if you will 
by the design of their platforms to shame each other and therefore profit those companies. Because after all, the more arguments we have, the more time we spend yelling at each other and having fights, the more time we spend clicking on ads, which is what how they make their money. So to be clear, this new form of what I would call the shame industrial complex, the, the social media platforms, is is... Is a slightly different approach to profiting from shame than the old school stuff, which is coming from like selling cosmetics and to people who have sagging skin or diets that don't work. That is the sort of like, let me put it this way. Those companies directly shame people, say, shame on you, buy our products, shame on you, buy our products. And that, that works, right? This is more like, hey, we're going to set up a perfect platform um, a perfect system, ecosystem for you guys to just spend all your time. And we'll, we'll actually even give you a little Molotov cocktails to throw at each other. Here's your thumbs down. Here's your thumbs down. Just click here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And here's your algorithm that floats the most outrageous, insightful, like um, stuff that the other people on the other side of the, of the wall are doing to enrage you and to encourage you to performatively shame them. Um, for the likes and for the retweets. So it, I just want to make the point that like, yes, we are behaving badly, but I want to punch up at the tech companies for giving us that terrible manipulative environment to do so. I also want to say that parents of say next gens who are all in their 15, 20 ish, all in their under 30 and they actually never knew a world without social media or the internet. It just was, it was there. Um, but their parents didn't. And social media is fairly new. And their parents told them to say please and thank you to people around them and told them all these manners. They never had a conversation about manners on the internet. It didn't exist. Maura, I would even go further. Like I, I, I would stipulate that some of the worst behaved humans are the people my age and older. Oh, really? um, on social media. Absolutely. And, and they just dive in and they, they're credulous. And, um, yeah, I don't think we should, we should look to the young people as the problems here. I think my experience of young people is that they stay off of social media because they know what a zoo it is. I see. I see. So not all of them, not all of them, but there, there are not a lot of rules here that we, uh, I couldn't call my grandmother up and ask her what, uh, what she thought about this. You'd just be say, be polite. It's like, just be polite. And there may be rules why, why that all came around. Just be polite. Well, yes. I mean, your point is well taken. I'm not suggesting that uh, the old rules shouldn't, uh, shouldn't hold. And I do think there is a real sense in which we have become undignified. Uh, our dignities, uh, the dignity violations that are so omnipresent all over the social media platforms have made us undignified because we have, in some sense, become addicted to that, to that pleasure that we get. And it's a real pleasure. I interviewed a psychologist named Molly Crockett about it. We get pleasure center stimulation from being outraged and from shaming others on social media. But it, to be clear, it's not a dignified feeling, right? It's a feeling that we we should probably get every now and then in order to keep the peace in our small neighborhood. But, but our neighborhood is much too large and the notion of keeping the peace has expanded way beyond what it was meant to look like. Now, you know, uh, 
intentional misinformation or disinformation is one thing. And I'm very much attuned to the snarky criticisms of Dr. Fauci. Is shame present in that dynamic, that, that those criticisms of Dr. Fauci? Well, there's a very precise question, and I'm not an expert on the criticism of Dr. Fauci, but I will, I'll step back a little bit, and I will say that science is weaponized, uh, and it's weaponized in a shaming way. I'm speaking with Dr. Kathy O'Neill, the author of The Shame Machine. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Technation are available on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we learn that one in four people die from blood clots. That's right, one in four. Anthos Therapeutics is working on a new approach to relieve this challenge. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Kathy O'Neill, whom you may know from having launched the LEAD program in data journalism at Columbia University. Dr. O'Neill recently founded ORCA, that's O R C A A, which stands for O'Neill Risk Consulting and Algorithmic Auditing. Their motto is It's the Age of the Algorithm, and we have arrived unprepared. She's here today with the shame machine. Who profits in the age of humiliation? Science is weaponized uh, and it's weaponized in a shaming way against us often. And we, moreover, have a society where we castigate people as ignorant if they don't quote unquote follow the science. And sometimes the science is actually not trustworthy. So it's it's not a clean, as clean a conversation as we wish it would be. I certainly think that the some of the most unbelievably clear data ever from science is, for example, how well vaccines work. You can't even get much more clear cut than you know, people who get the vaccine don't die. People who don't get the vaccine tend to die. Like that's very, very clear. And yet if we have spent the last 
few decades, you know, shaming people for not trusting stuff that is itself maybe not trustworthy. When you think about the, you know, the racist, you know, medical studies that we, we know have happened to African-Americans, for example, we just, we have to acknowledge that it's not as clear as like science is real, like the science would have you think, right? So I do, I, I don't know about Dr. Fauci, but I think Dr. Fauci probably is a stand-in for authority that is um, condescending, um, that people are sick of being told they're ignorant if they don't, if they don't accept everything that Fauci says as, as gospel. There's also a challenge with just science being science. The frontier of science moves daily. And so what we thought on one day can be different the next day and diametrically opposed the following. And if you don't understand this, you can also be very highly reactive to, why am I listening to you? You change your mind every day. That's a very good point. If it was anything else, it'd be like, forget it. You know, so there's that nature of science. And then, of course, the nature of politics. The nature of science is that we work in the context of uncertainty a lot of the time so that people um, become more and more sure over time of things scientists do. But it doesn't help when things like don't wear a mask, wear a mask, do this, don't do that. You know, when things actually when it when advice actually changes, um, I'm not I'm not by the way, I'm not blaming Dr. Fauci for any of this. It is the nature of the, his role as both a scientist and as somebody who works in the in the real world of politics that he had to do a, a lot of different things. But I'm just saying you're right that uncertainty um, makes people suspicious. That's a that's a human uh, human quality that we have. Now let's talk about the cancel culture. You know about the Karens, which is the uh, the story of Amy Cooper and not related Christian Cooper in Central Park. Let's talk about that in terms of shame. Yeah. So Amy Cooper was walking her dog in Central Park and Christian Cooper was a bird bird watcher um, also in Central Park. And I guess they were sharing the same space. Um, and Christian Cooper asked Amy Cooper to put her dog on a leash. And at some point she pulled out her phone and started um, calling the police at, uh, saying that she felt threatened. And at that point, I think Christian Cooper took his phone out and started videotaping it. So we got that sort of tail end of that exchange on video, which blew up with the internet. Um, and Amy Cooper subsequently got deeply shamed um, on, in a viral way on a Twitter and Facebook and all the platforms. And then she lost her job. Um, Christian Cooper, I thought, uh, you know, behaved really very reasonably. He like was interviewed. He, he was, he actually said quite a few very human things about the situation. Um, for example, I don't think he's, I think he said he didn't, he didn't think she necessarily needed to lose her job over it. Um, so from, from my perspective, in, in terms of the overall nature of shame on the internet, this is not surprising. Uh, we see a lot of this happening with, with people who make mistakes and then are castigated and targeted with shame. Um, I personally think it's punching down in the sense that I don't think I'll ever get I don't expect to ever hear from Amy Cooper again. And so I don't expect to be able to see that she is, she's improving her behavior. Um, and I, I also think, to be honest, that we need to aim higher. I, I, I just want to say that like Amy Cooper, what, what was really happening there, and I don't need to defend her at all. I really don't. What she did was a mistake, was wrong. 
But what she was relying on was an even bigger and more systemic problem, namely the fact that white women can call the police and reasonably expect the police to come and take her side and even possibly arrest the man that she's falsely accusing of, of uh, hostile behavior. In particular, she's not worried that she's going to be arrested for calling the cops unreasonably, right? So there's that deep asymmetry. It's deeply historical. And that's the thing that I think we need to address. Um, that's the thing I think we need to keep our eyes on because it ultimately is the power that she was uh, appealing to. Um and that all Karens appeal to. Karens are not doing the right thing, don't get me wrong, but Karens will be told they did the wrong thing. The real question is why is the system that they're appealing to stay there? And I guess the secondary question is when people retweet the Karen videos, are, do they think they're addressing that larger systemic problem? Because I don't think they are. You assert that there is healthy shame that a society can utilize. Uh, what are you talking about there? Yeah, so... And this, this goes back to the question of when is shame appropriate? So I'd say punching down shame when somebody doesn't have the voice or the choice is inappropriate. So appropriate shame would be when they do have a choice and a voice. So that would be typical example of that would be like holding power to account, right? Hey, you know, person in power, you claimed you were going to do this, but you're not doing it. We're we shame on you for not doing it. We're waiting for you to do it. And we're going to keep an eye on you till you do it. Right. That's a, there's a punching up standard uh, setup, uh, holding power to account. But there's another example of healthy shame. And of course, healthy shame means shame that works. So you have to ask the question, when does shame work? Uh, we've already seen that when somebody doesn't share the norm that you're appealing to, like when they don't actually agree with the rule that you think they've broken, they're not going to um, conform they're not going to conform to that norm. So if you try to shame an anti-masker into masking, they're not going to do it. In fact, it'll backfire. They'll be like, you know what? You know, go to hell. So the very first question of you should ask yourself when you're not only trying to be appropriate, but, but you're trying to be useful, right, for the community, when you're trying to make it work and have it be healthy shame is, is does this person agree with the norm? And that's when you see people strategically appeal to universal norms, to higher, if you will, higher level norms. When you say, listen, we, we all agree that um, we want this community to be healthy. Uh, we, we, all, we all care about grandma, you know? Um, and so you have to, I guess what I'm suggesting is that healthy shame, in order for shame to actually work in a healthy way, that's not just punching up at power, but rather um, shame inside a, a, a smaller space is that there has to be a shared sense of community and norms. Um, and then there, it, it actually kind of works not as just straight up shame. It works more as like a, a, a sort of soft shame, I would call it a threat of shame, but really what it looks like is persuasion. So it's really what you're doing at that moment is you're saying, listen, this, this, this behavior is working for you personally, but it's not working for the community. And I know you care about the community and you're appealing to that sense that universal sense. We care about this community. By the way, a great example of, I think a beautiful example of this is what Zelensky, Ukraine's president is doing with the rest of the leaders of the, of the, of the Western democracies, right? He's saying, I'm appealing to you as, as a community of leaders of, de of democratic ideals, um, that we should work together. And I care about those ideals. And so do you, and like, let's do this 
and you should help me. You should help me defend this for the sake of our community. I mean, it's just, it couldn't be more, more obvious that that's, he is threatening to shame them. Right. But at the end of the day, he's persuading them to act on his behalf, which is, is a soft kind of shame. As you were going through your four stages of, of shame, you know, the first being hurt, the second denial. And, and for many, and for many situations, you're just in a constant hurt, you know, cycle of hurt and denial. And you can deny for many years and suddenly remember, and you're hurt all over again, you know, <laughs> and maybe you can get through to acceptance. And at the best time, transcendence, it seems to me that, um, that what we've been talking about uh, in social media and on the internet and even almost publicly, it's like, once you've done wrong, you've done wrong. That's what we remember you for. It doesn't, it doesn't bring you through. It doesn't enable you to come through to acceptance and, and transcendence that as a society, we need to be able to, to have redemption here and yeah. uh, somehow, because I don't think, I don't think we have it. I don't think that's in the script thus far. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well said. Um, and that is, of course, what I mean by making sure someone has voice before before targeting them for shame, because if they will not have the opportunity to to be seen as improving their behavior, to be redeemed, to be reaccepted, um, then we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. And by the way, I, I, I would be remiss if not if I didn't give you, I think, the most principal example of the way we punish people sort of infinitely in this country as a rule. And I think we could do a lot better, but it's our prison system. Our prison system is, is sort of designed, and not sort of designed, it is designed explicitly to be as sort of undignified as, you know, as violating of someone's dignity, as shaming inherently as one can imagine. And we tend to um, explicitly never forgive people. We, we tag them with a felony if they've gone to prison and it prevents them from voting. It prevents them from being full citizens in many cases. It prevents them from public housing when they desperately need it, which often leads to um, returning to prison. Um, I, I talk about in my book, I talk about a prison reentry program which is tantamount to in continued incarceration because that's what we feel that people deserve, quote unquote, um, even when they've done their time. Um, so my argument is that that is, of course, the most extreme example of how we use shame uh, systematically in this country. But it is um, it is kind of echoed in the way we deal with each other on a day to day basis in in small kinds of interactions just on the Internet. And we really could and must do better. So in the end, you believe that the key is for all people to be treated with trust and dignity. Why both trust and dignity? Well, I think that's the context in which shame can be healthy, right? So if you're, if you're inherently un treating people with an undignified, in an undignified manner. And by the way, when I, when I talk about this, I'm really trying to address the designers of the spaces on the internet, not just us. I'm not trying to shame everyone who listens, who finds themselves in this outrage spiral on Facebook. That's by design. You know, it's the, it's the Facebook designers that I'm, tr I'm really trying to get to. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so they are, they, it's, it, it's very, it's very important for them to design the spaces to allow for dignity and for trust, because that's the context in which we can actually use shame not as a weapon of 
of punishment, but as a, a persuasion of a more coherent society. Well, Kathy, so much in this book, uh, as I said, it really knocked me out when I was reading it going, oh yeah, I remember this. Ooh, I remember this. <laughs> oh yeah. I think I know how this goes. I think I, and I know where my hot buttons are. So I, I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back and see us again. I really hope so too. And thank you for reading. My guest today is Dr. Kathy O'Neill. Her book is The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? It's published by Crown. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Blood clots of any sort are dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that one in four people die from blood clots, while the medical conditions they suffer, the medicines they take, and even the medical procedures they undergo are substantially different. Dr. Daniel Bloomfield is the chief medical officer of Anthos Therapeutics. Daniel, welcome to Biotech Nation. Nice to see you. Nice to hear from you. For any number of medical conditions and medical situations, there's a concern about blood clots, just their general medical condition, people with cancer, people undergoing surgery, to name a few. I didn't really put it all together until you told me that one in four people, and I mean all people, one in four people die of a blood clot. So that's absolutely right, Maura. A huge number of patients die from blood clots, and probably the most worrisome are heart attacks and strokes. And so given the number of people who die from strokes and heart attacks, we need to find medicines to prevent those from happening. So what's the difference between uh, having a clot and just bleeding? Right. So your body needs to stop bleeding. If you get a cut, your body has a process of forming a blood clot to stop the bleeding. And that's normal. The blood clots that we're talking about are not normal. It's when the body creates clots abnormally, which cause certain types of disease or problems. Those blood clots are what we have to prevent. We want to prevent the clots from happening, reduce the risk of stroke, but we don't want to affect bleeding. We want your body to still be able to form a clot to stop bleeding. Now, let's go into this. What happens when you have a blood clot? So, so there are two types of blood vessels. There are arteries where the body... The heart pumps blood out to the body and brings oxygen to the tissues in the body, like muscles or, or the brain. And blood clots in arteries means that those tissues don't get the oxygen they need, and the tissues can actually die. A heart attack is when part of the heart dies. A stroke is when part of the brain dies. And so that's the consequence of having a clot in an artery. Now, on the other side, blood comes back to the heart through veins. And it goes back to the heart through the veins and eventually goes to the lung to get more oxygen. But in the veins, you can also have blood clots. And those blood clots can break off and cause a blood clot in the lung, which means you can't oxygenate your, your blood properly. When you said one in four patients die of, of blood clots, most of those are people who die of blood clots in the arteries. So this is a heart attack or a stroke. But you can also have clots in the veins. The veins is what brings the blood back to the heart comes back to the heart, goes through the lungs, gets more oxygen before it goes out again to the tissues. But blood clots in the veins can break off. And when they break off, they can travel up the heart and into the lungs and prevent the blood from being oxygenated properly. 
Now, these blood clots are common in lots of people, but they're particularly common in patients with cancer. And that's a major issue that we're trying to, to approach here. Why is that prevalent in patients with cancer? When someone has cancer, there are things that happen besides just the cells getting bigger, causing a tumor. There are, in fact, different types of things that cancer cells can put out that actually increase your risk of having clot. And in fact, the risk of having a clot if you have cancer is much, much greater than the risk of having a clot if you don't have cancer. Now, what are the standard treatments when you're in danger of having clots? So the standard treatments are blood thinners. You want to thin the blood so that clots don't form. And these blood thinners uh, can be used to treat blood clots that are actively happening, and they can be used to prevent blood clots. If you think about the one in four patients who die, we want to prevent those clots before they before they kill you, right? That's that's the focus of a lot of research. How do we prevent those clots from happening? But if you show up in the emergency room with a clot, these blood thinners can also treat those clots. The treatment of blood clots started a long time ago with a drug called warfarin. And warfarin actually affects a number of different factors that are involved in clotting. The clotting process involves factors which together cause uh, blood to stick together and you form a plug that stops blood from, from bleeding. And warfarin blocks a number of those factors and therefore um, prevents clots from forming that are abnormal, like clots in the arteries and veins. But at the same time, it's affecting factors which are also needed for normal clotting to stop bleeding. Now, since warfarin, we've now had a number of advances in the treatment of clots. And, and these are new drugs now called factor 10A inhibitors. Factor 10A is another factor that's involved in the normal clotting process. Factor 10A inhibitors, like Seralto and Eliquis, are used both to treat clots and to prevent clots. And factor 10A inhibitors are a real advance because they only affect one factor, not multiple factors. And they're much easier to use and prescribe. However, I understand that MDs are afraid to use these. That's right, more because physicians, when faced with wanting to prevent someone from having a stroke or a heart attack or prevent someone from having a clot of any sort, are left with the decision, how much do I want to reduce the risk of clotting, but not increase the risk of bleeding? And in some situations, physicians and patients are afraid of bleeding so much that they don't get the drugs that are used to prevent clots, which means they're at increased risk for getting clots. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult uh, scale to, to, to balance there. Now, when we were talking earlier, I, I often said to people, give me an example of a patient. And you said, well, there's my mother. <laughs> it's like, yeah, tell the story of your mother. I mean, this is, this is classic in a sense. Sure. So my mother was 82 a couple of years ago, reasonably healthy woman, was playing cards. And all of a sudden, she couldn't hold her cards. Her cards dropped out of her hand. And then she began to slump over. And the people in the room knew this is probably a stroke. So they rushed her to the hospital. Sure enough, she was having a stroke. And they then treated her. And over the next couple of days, actually, she improved and was left really with very little deficit from the stroke. But they were afraid of another stroke from happening. So they gave her blood thinners. And as you know, blood thinners are effective in preventing strokes, but they also have complications of bleeding. And four days after she got home, she had a massive bleed from her colon, lost about a third of the blood, and was hospitalized for two weeks until that stabilized. At that point, the doctors were stuck. I just saw this patient, my mother, bleed a lot. 
but I know she's at risk for having a stroke. So how do I balance that equation? And they decided, given how serious the bleed was, they were not going to give her a blood thinner and wait until she stabilized. Two weeks later, she had her second stroke. That's the challenge. Doctors are stuck trying to protect patients from having strokes, but they're also afraid of causing bleeding. And my mother's a perfect example of that. In fact, when this happened, I sent a note to my team saying, this is why we're here. This patient, my mother, is why we're trying to develop this drug. I wouldn't be surprised if you just wrote, hurry up. <laughs> Get I did, exactly that. I'll, I'll send you the letter because it, it does say hurry up. Hurry up, hurry up. So now what has Anthos done here? So I mentioned before that, that there are factors which are involved both in normal clotting, but also involved in clotting that's abnormal. And factor 11 is one of those factors, which tends not to be involved in normal clotting. Yet, it's an important factor in causing clots. So if you can inhibit factor 11, you can try to prevent those clots, but the risk of bleeding will be very low. And we know that because patients who are born with factor 11 deficiency have essentially normal bleeding profiles. They they bleed like the rest of us, and yet they're protected from having strokes um, and other clots. And so our drug and others are trying to recapitulate, are trying to create a situation where the human body acts like someone who's factor 11 deficient. And our drug then inhibits factor 11 to try to achieve that. Now, is this something that you would take a pill a day or how, how, does, how would that work? Yeah, there's numbers of ways that we can treat patients. Um, a pill a day or twice a day is a common way of treating patients. But there are also injections that you can use to treat patients. And our drug um, will be a once a month injection. So instead of taking pills every day, you get a once a month injection. In some cases, people have to take injections every day. And this would be a real advance for them because they're taking one injection a month rather than injections every day. Now, you're you're pretty far along in this process. You've got at least one in phase three, the last and largest as you need to get drug approval, but you've also got a very large phase two, a number of other things working here for a different condition. Tell us what you're doing here. So we're developing a drug, and I'll give you the name. Uh, it's not an easy name to pronounce. It's called abelazumab, or we like to say with an Italian version, abelazumab. I won't say that again, but that's the drug that we're, we're developing. And we're developing this drug initially for two indications, two diseases that we want to treat. The first is we'd like to treat patients who have an increased risk of having a stroke, where we know blood thinners are effective in preventing strokes. And we're doing a large phase two study in about 1,200 patients to see whether or not our drug causes less bleeding than the currently available drugs because that's the important part of what we're doing. We want to have the same benefit in preventing a stroke, but cause less bleeding. So we're also developing our drug to treat and prevent blood clots in patients with cancer. As I mentioned, patients with cancer are much more likely to get blood clots than other people. And in fact, they're very disruptive to patients who are already sick and receiving chemotherapy. So we're getting ready to start our phase three trials, the studies that the FDA wants to see before a drug is approved. We're starting these phase three trials in patients who have cancer and present at the hospital with a blood clot. We have a plan that includes 2,600 patients in two studies that we believe will show they were at least as good as current therapies, but with less bleeding. That's our current plan. And we should um, 
and these studies will be sufficient for the FDA to go ahead and approve the drug um, and, and approve it for the indication of treating and preventing clots in cancer. So in addition to the phase three studies we're doing in cancer, we're also preparing phase three studies for patients who are at risk for stroke. And those preparations are undergoing, are being developed now, and will depend in part on what we see in our phase two study um, with patients at risk for stroke. So we have a lot going on. I know that one of your studies, you looked at people with knee operations. This obviously has to do with surgery. And I think that was a phase two study. I don't recall. I'd have to look at it again. Describe that study and what were the results? So patients that have knee replacements are prone to develop clots in the leg where they're having their knee replaced. And patients who have knee replacements are a perfect way to study blood thinners because you want to know, can you prevent the clots in the leg from forming? This is a study, type of study has been done in many, many different um, drugs for many, many years. And it's a sign that your drug does prevent blood clots. It was a phase two study, not a definitive study for the FDA, but to give us evidence that we could prevent blood clots. And so our study uh, of about 400 patients compared three doses of our drug to a standard of care, and we showed an 80% reduction in the formation of blood clots in these patients. That gave us confidence to move forward with our program in cancer and our program with patients at risk for stroke. I think this is really important for people to understand because so many people think that these clinical trials, these studies to approve drugs happen out of nowhere. Oh, we think we'll test it. Oh, look, it worked or it didn't. It's like, no, there's a lot that goes into it to make sure that the questions you ask are the right questions. You have to learn a lot about the process. That's right. We did four phase one studies to learn enough about the drug, what the dose should be, how it works, before we were able to start our phase two studies. And our phase two study was done to show that we prevent clotting. That was the key finding, which lets us go into phase three studies, where we actually try to prevent clots in patients uh, that need them. Well, Dan, Dr. Bloomfield, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you'll come back and keep us updated. Thanks, Mara. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Daniel Bloomfield is the chief medical officer of Anthos Therapeutics. More information is available on the web at anthostherapeutics.com. That's anthos, A-N-T-H-O-S, anthostherapeutics.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.